Please turn your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 10, and as you turn there, I will give you a personal note on this passage. In my personal study of Scripture, Zechariah 10 is actually one of the passages that I've struggled with, struggled with articulating, struggled with grasping its precise force. You can teach it and you can be accurate, but the question is not just one of accuracy and correctness, but really understanding why this passage is here and why Zechariah, under the inspiration of the Spirit, desired it to be here and the force and the impact it should have upon our lives as he intended it to be. And capturing that clearly and articulating it well has always been a struggle for me. And so I am thankful for both translating this passage for the Legacy Standard Bible because that was quite illuminating and then having to write commentary on it because this really solidified in my own heart how practical, how powerful, and how compelling Zechariah chapter 10 will be. And so what I am sharing with you are things that have been truly impressed upon my own heart, things that I've truly had to wrestle with and learn and think through. And all that to say is this sermon could be really short because I don't have much to say, or it could be really long because I'm going to say a lot. So we'll just see what the Lord does. But this is Zechariah chapter 10, and it is so timely to be here. As we think about Zechariah chapter 10, it is helpful to never lose the big picture, to never forget what is going on in the book, and particularly then why this passage is where it is. Why is Zechariah 10 chapter 10, as opposed to chapter 14, as opposed to chapter 3, or opposed to chapter 4? There's a reason why it is in the place it is, and so we should always keep in mind the big picture the flow of this book. Zechariah is a book about Yahweh remembering. To the Israelites who were discouraged, to the Israelites who were questioning whether it was worthwhile to serve God by specifically, as he commanded them at that time, to rebuild the temple, to the Israelites who were wondering and curious about the glories that were to come, God has a very simple message through Zechariah, namely, I remember. I remember all my promises, God declares, therefore your work is worthwhile. I remember all my promises, so you don't need to be discouraged. I'm with you. I remember all my promises, so you should have hope and persevere. These are part of the applications of the main theme of this book, which is Yahweh remembers. And the way God demonstrates his remembrance is in the first six chapters, you have a series of dreams You have a series of visions at night that Zechariah encounters. And through these visions, God demonstrates to Zechariah, I remember, I remember my plan and I am active to do it. I remember what is going on right now in the world. I remember that and will take care of it. I remember my promises for Israel, both good for their prosperity and bad, for their refinement and judgment. I remember what I promised to do to the nations. God remembers that as well. And God remembers centrally what he promised about his Messiah, his own son, who is the linchpin of everything. And so God bombards Zechariah with affirmation after affirmation in these dramatic visions that he remembers all that he promised. And he even sets up for Zechariah to encourage the people a scene, kind of a skit, whereby he can show Israel. And when all the promises come together, 
in Zechariah 6. When all that God says comes to fruition and culminates, this is what it will be. And it will be a moment when the Lord Jesus Christ is coronated. That is what you're looking for. That is God's, in a sense, end game. And the scene will be spectacular with the best crown and the best crowd and, of course, the best king. And that will be so triumphant. And Israel at that moment should know everything they do is worth it because he is worth it. And there will be glory in the end. Even still, having reminded Israel of his promises in the first six chapters, as well as where all these promises go to at the end of chapter six, the question that Israel has is, okay, so what do we do with that? How do we think through these promises? And so in chapters seven and eight, God gives an application. And the application is deep, and it is penetrating, and it is worthy for us to think about. It's a simple question. Israel says, okay, how do we get these promises? Maybe we need to fast more. Maybe we need to do more things for God. Maybe we need to mourn better. Should we keep doing it? What should we do different to earn his favor? And God said, you missed the whole point. If you think you earn this, if you think you merit this, you have it completely wrong. This is all grace. And God asks a very penetrating question. It's in Zechariah chapter 7, verse 5. This is practical application. He says this, when you fasted, did you do it for me? That's the question. When you fasted, did you fast for me? Are you just going through the motions? Are you just going through the actions? Are you just having ritual? Because if that's all that is, That doesn't earn you anything because you can't earn anything anyways. And that's an abomination. And then God says, and I know you don't just fast. You also feast. You also have celebrations. He says this, when you were celebrating, were you not celebrating for yourself? And here's what we have to realize, brothers and sisters. What's the practical application of God's promises? True worship. That's the application. It's true worship where you're not just going through the motions to check off a box Or you're not just going through the motions to feel good. Because God's point is, if you feast for yourself, then all you're doing is worshiping yourself. You are the object of worship. Sometimes we think going through the motions, externalism, is, well, it's no harm, no foul. Well, that's not true. God says, that's just a form of idolatry. Because all you're doing is worshiping yourself. Who are you worshiping? And you cannot tell that on the outside. It's very difficult to detect that from external activity because one person in genuine worship may look very similar to somebody who's artificial and fake. But God asks the penetrating question, which is, in your heart, which one are you? Are you real? Or are you just a ritual? And God says, those who really are motivated by the promises of God, Zechariah chapter 8, of his future kingdom, which is to come, which he's been talking about, they will have a truly changed life. They will be those who speak the truth because they're anticipating a kingdom of truth. Those who are anticipating a kingdom where justice reigns, they'll be just in their own life. Those who have that kind of hope, they will be motivated by the grace of God, not to earn his favor, but they know because God has made a promise. And so it is because of him and not because of us. God says, I've given you all these promises. I've told you that I remember. Here's 
the practical way that fleshes out in your life. I'm sincere that I remember. Are you sincere in remembering me? That's the way to put it. That's the way to put it. And so in these first eight chapters, you have the visions and the promises and the culmination of the promises and the application of those promises. But then, years later, Zechariah gives another set of prophecies, chapters 9 through 14. It's one thing to have promises. It's another thing to have a plan. I've always noticed this. Sometimes students or staff, they come to me and they say, I've got great ideas, and they start listing off all the ideas, and I think, this is amazing. How are you going to do it? I don't know. (laughs) Well, then it's nothing. No, no, no. It will be done. And then when it's time for due date, Dr. Chow, yes? Can I have an extension? How long do you need? Forever. (laughs) You can make promises. But if you have no plan to execute, it'll never happen. And in chapters 9 through 14, God says, I didn't just give you promises, these individual guarantees. I actually have a plan to make them all work, and it's a plan throughout all history. And in chapters 9 through 14, this plan is broken down in a way that stands the test of time to this very day. There are two major eras, two major periods of time in world history. One is the period of the Gentiles. That's seen in Zechariah chapters 9 through 11. That's why in Zechariah 9 it says the burden or the oracle of the word of Yahweh about the land of Hadrach. That is why that is said. And then the second oracle, the second period of time, deals with the era not of the Gentiles but of the Jews, of Israel. And that is found in Zechariah 12 through 14. Our Lord even affirms this in Luke chapter 21. He talks about the times of the Gentiles. That's what we're in right now. And so chapters 9 through 11 of Zechariah give the first part of world history, which is the times of the Gentiles. And then the next part of world history is Zechariah 12 through 14, which is the time of Israel which is the time of Israel. And we see that in eschatology. Right now in history, we know Israel is a very small country. And though they wield influence in a certain way and attention in a certain way, the eye of God right now and his activity is flowing primarily through the church. That's what's going on in this era of the Gentiles. But we know that the church will be raptured. And when we're removed... There is a reason for that. It's not just to show mercy on us, but for God to fulfill his promises that he made to who? To Israel. And that's what goes on in the end times. And so just like Zechariah 9 through 11 has the era of the Gentiles, then the era of Israel, and Jesus said the same thing, so it is in eschatology that very way. God has a plan. God has a plan. There's a way everything should work. And we see the beginnings of that plan in chapter 9. And we heard that this plan in the time of the Gentiles is a plan about conquerors and conquests. There will be many leaders at this time, many victors, many quote-unquote heroes. You will have people like Alexander the Great, who just comes in nation after nation in rapid conquest. We see that in chapter 9. We see that there will be a lot of battles, a lot of wars, that there will be a lot of conflict and a lot of victory and a lot of losses of other nations as well, but it will all climax in the era of the Gentiles around one conqueror. 
And unlike other conquerors, this one is not riding a horse. Zechariah 9 verse 8 says that he is riding on a donkey. He's riding on a donkey. And he's not riding to get things for himself. It says this, he is riding for salvation. He's here to save others. And he is not, this conqueror, a bold, brash, selfish individual. It says this, he is humble and afflicted. This comfort, this conqueror is a different kind of conqueror. He comes not for himself, but for others. He comes to save, not by might or power, but by sacrifice and by atonement. That's this conqueror. And so Zechariah says in the era of the Gentiles, which really is the era of everything that has happened in Zechariah's day all the way till the time that the church is raptured, you could say, and a little bit beyond that into the tribulational period, all of that time of the era of the Gentiles, you got to keep your eyes on one thing. There will be a lot of heroes. There will be a lot of wars, but there's one hero. There's one hero, and you cannot miss him and he's the conqueror, and he's riding on a donkey, and he's the one who's going to save you from your sins and save you for everything. That's what chapter 9 reminds us. God has a plan. And by the way, this plan is not just abstract. It's not just theoretical. We can identify, as was done last week in chapter 9, that these events, some of them have already happened. We take for granted that there was an Alexander the Great He's mentioned in basically every single ancient history textbook. There's a reason for that, because it's true. Because it's true. God's plan is in action. There's another holiday that Christians sometimes get jealous of since we are in the holiday season, and that is the holiday of Hanukkah. You say, why are Christians jealous of Hanukkah? Well, there's two reasons. One, if you're in Israel, you would know this, but they like to eat a lot of fried food at Hanukkah. That's always yummy. They have great donuts during that time. But the second primary reason is that sometimes Christians get jealous of Hanukkah because you get seven times the amount of presents. <laughs> and one for each day of Hanukkah, and it's like seven more than you get at Christmas. And so people get very jealous of Hanukkah, but they take it for granted that Hanukkah exists. They take it for granted that Alexander the Great exists. Here's what you have to realize. Zechariah prophesied about those events hundreds of years before they happened hundreds of years before they happened. That's amazing. And what you assume and what you presume is actually prophesied history. It's that real. It's that true. And if you're wondering, is God's plan at work? The answer is, it's not just that it is at work. It has been at work. You are part of the inertia of that plan. You are part of the reality of that plan. This plan is not theoretical. This plan is a fact. And everybody knows it. Everybody who acknowledges the existence of Alexander the Great, they are acknowledging that the scripture is true, whether they like it or not. Everyone who knows about the holiday of Hanukkah, they are acknowledging that the scripture has spoken rightly and has made prophecy that is true. This is that real. This is that real. And what we need to remind ourselves about our Christian life, our Christian faith, and our place in the plan of God is that this plan is not just a story. It's certainly not a myth. It isn't just a clever tale. This is fact. This is fact. This is that real. And it should, and the truth of that should, shape our lives. 
You can bank on this. Well, God has presented a plan. And in his providence for us living at this time, we understand that that plan is in action. It is mobilized. We have seen parts of it already come to fruition, and we know then that the rest will happen. And of course, one of the clearest, if not clearest, definitions and demonstrations of that is that we did see the one coming in Jerusalem riding on a donkey. We celebrate that every year as well, and we depend on that. And so this plan is real. And you might say, well, well, how do I apply that though? I know that it's real, fine. I know that it's true, fine. But how does that shape my daily living? Is it good enough just to have the knowledge of it? Is it good enough just to have the confidence in it? Is it good enough just to have the facts of it? Those facts are important. Don't get me wrong. That worldview matters. Don't get me wrong. But Zechariah says there's a very important application. There's a very important application. This is the application, you could say, for the era of the Gentiles. It is the application. It is as if Zechariah is saying, if there is one thing you can do, and it's the only thing you can do, do this one thing. It reminds me, sometimes in film and books and in my own life, you emphasize there's one important thing, and when you emphasize it, you do something that blocks the important thing. For example, I was writing once on a whiteboard. I said, make sure you all know this, and I wrote it on the whiteboard, and then I stood right in front of it so no one could see it. It reminds me of a time when somebody was giving instructions and then someone was vacuuming. And so the vacuuming, and he said, this is the most important thing you have to know. And the vacuum turns on and it blocks his instructions. Well, Zechariah doesn't do any of that. He puts it right here in chapter 10, bold in front of us to say, if you can do one thing, this is the one thing you've got to do. This is the one application that matters for this time period that extends from the days of Zechariah all the way to the end times. And you say, what is that one thing? Simple, simple. Zechariah said, I've already told you, in the plan of God, you're going to have a lot of wars, a lot of battles, a lot of conquerors, a lot of hero, a lot of people, a lot of leaders. You're going to see all kinds of them. You better pick the right one. Simple. Let's keep it easy. Find the man on the donkey and cling to him. Don't get distracted by anyone else. Find the right guy and trust in him. It's not hard. That's what chapter 10 is all about. And that's the crucial application. You're going to find all kinds of charismatic, influential, powerful people. People you might think are good leaders for you. People you think could be your shepherd. You better find the good shepherd. That is Zechariah's message. Don't settle for a substitute. That is his warning. And we, we in our culture, we can be very familiar with this notion of substitute. We can be very familiar with this notion of substitute. We know things that are off-brand, generic brand, and we buy them because they're less expensive. They don't cost us much money, and, and maybe we can give them as a gift or souvenir or something like that. I have no idea, but there might be good reasons behind it. You know, instead of buying a Rolex, you buy a Rilex. <laughs> and you know, when you put it on your arm, it's going to turn green. You know. That sometimes you shake a watch up and down to power it. This you shake up and down to break it. You know that. 
Uh, in my quest to find substitutes, I went on the internet to do intensive research on what are the best rip-off brands that there may be. And there are brands like this. Instead of Mountain Dew the soda, they have Mountain View. No kidding. <laughs> they have action figures instead of Superman Special Man. There's a film evidently called It. I don't recommend it at all. But there's a rip-off movie called That. No kidding. <laughs> You can't make this stuff up. Starbucks becomes Sunbucks. Star Wars becomes Star Wart. Ow. And then instead of the brand Puma, they have the brand Tuna. Amazing. There are always off-brands. There are always rip-offs. One of my favorite that I personally experienced was one time I was in Israel uh, in, the, in the Negev region, which is the south. It's very hot. It's the summer. Our bus breaks down. So now we're in a toaster oven, which is also the bus. And we're waiting for a replacement bus to come. It takes hours. The bus picks us up. We're all sweating. We're all hot. Drops us off at the hotel. The hotel is barely air conditioned, but there's at least food, which is nice. And in the center of all the food, there is this tub of ice cream. And I thought, Praise the Lord. He is so good. And it didn't even dawn on me to think about, there's meat there. So how can you have ice cream if there's meat? Because they don't mix milk and meat. But nevertheless, in my naivety or in my gluttony, whatever it may have been, I'm reaching and scooping up all this ice cream into my plate, eager, eager to dive in and be refreshed. And so I take a big bite. And I realize it's not cold, creamy, refreshing ice cream. It is tofu, lukewarm, ice cream flavored bubble gum. I was so disappointed. My soul was crushed. We know the disappointment of a substitute. We know that a substitute cannot be what the real thing is. That's why it's called a substitute. We know that there is a faulty nature to it, that it falls far short of the substance of the reality. And here's Zechariah's warning. Don't fall for a substitute. They can look good. They can be charismatic. They can be persuasive. They can look like they're going to get the job done, but they're a substitute. Do not settle for a cheap substitute. And for us in this time... This is important for two reasons. One, because fundamentally, like I said, this is the issue for the times of the Gentiles. And we are in that time. We are between the days of Zechariah and the end times. Therefore, this question, which is the question for that time, is the question for our time. But second, it is a particularly important question for us nowadays. In this season, not just of the plan of God, but this season, not even of our lives, but of this very year. We know that we have just finished the Thanksgiving holiday season, and so we're in the Christmas season. And it is so easy to accept a substitute. It is so easy to find joy and to find happiness and to believe, to believe in our hearts that something else besides Christ can satisfy us. That the warm and fuzzy is good enough and sufficient. That Santa or whatever can grant our wishes. Whatever falsehood may be, these are cheap substitutes of the real. 
And at this season of our lives, we must remember Zechariah's exhortation. Accept no substitute. Do not trade your Savior for a cheap substitute. That is the exhortation. And there are three steps by which Zechariah lays this out for us. Three steps. And here is the first one. In verses 1 and 2 of Zechariah chapter 10, it is seek Yahweh. Seek Yahweh. Step one, how to avoid bad substitutes? Seek Yahweh. That's the standard. Verses 1 and 2. Notice the opening words of Zechariah 10 verse 1. Ask from Yahweh for rain. And you say, wait, you just talked about the substitute thing, and and we're talking about conquerors in chapter 9 and the plan of God, and then all of a sudden now, Zechariah out of nowhere says, ask Yahweh for rain? How does that fit in? I know, this is why it can be confusing, even to me, as I acknowledged earlier. But let's break this down a little bit. Let's talk about what it means to ask. Sometimes our problem is this. We ask God amiss, as James says. We ask when we shouldn't ask. Let's put it that way. Because we ask amiss. We have bad motives. We're not asking according to the will of God. We're asking for selfish ambition and selfish pleasure and things of this nature. And so there are times when we ask things for God and we shouldn't have asked. But there's another side to it, which we forget, which are there are many times when we should have asked God and we didn't. We should have asked God and we didn't. When we are to bring our daily needs before the Lord, when we are to bring our daily concerns before him, when we are to cast our burdens on him, when we are to do all these things to worship and ask and depend and trust upon him, and we fail to do so, you can ask amiss, but you, by failing to ask, also are amiss. And we cannot forget that. Here is what Zechariah says, ask, ask. Don't forget to trust. And don't forget who you're trusting in. You're not just trusting in some generic God. You are trusting, as the text says, from Yahweh. From Yahweh, the covenant God, the God who loves you, the God who cares about you. James says we must believe because we know it is the truth because it is the truth that God gives generously. Are we coming to God, trusting in him, knowing who he is? Are we just going through the motions as Zechariah earlier warned about? And what are the Israelites supposed to ask for? They're supposed to ask for rain. You say, why rain? Well, fundamentally, because they need rain for their crops. As the next phrase says, even the late rains. That's rains around the time of March and April that will finish off the harvest. They need that for their daily bread. This is the most basic idea. But it's not just that. It's that God promised that he would provide them rain if they were repentant and good people to him and followed him. That's found in Deuteronomy chapter 11. And even more than that, God said this to his people, that in the end times, at the end of his plan, at the culmination of all history, God would provide rain that would rejuvenate the entire land such that a wilderness would turn into a fertile field. Isaiah 35 says that. Isaiah 35 says this. In Joel chapter 2, God said, I know I judged you. I sent locusts after locusts to ravage you, but I'll turn it all around and I'll send you the rain. I'll send you the rain. These are eschatological promises. And in fact, if you look at verse 17 of chapter 9, that's one verse before chapter 10, it talks about they're going to have beautiful grain and new wine indicative of the harvest. And so God says, you want to know how to apply all these promises? Ask 
for rain. Israel trusts God in the most basic things of life, knowing that if he can take care of you in the most basic thing, he'll take care of you all the way to the end when he provides the ultimate rain. You trust him now. Sometimes our problem is this. We face the Christian life and we think of all the trials, all the big, big traumas that one can go through. And you think, how could I ever have the faith to survive that? How could I ever persevere through that? And the reason those things are so overwhelming is simple, because we never bothered to ask the Lord for rain. We never bothered to ask for the most basic things. We breeze through the modern day, the Christian equivalent of this, which is give us this day our daily bread. We don't bother to ask. We just assume. And when we assume, we don't see the faithfulness of God. And we don't practice continuous trust in him. And you do not build up the consistent practice and the consistent habit of learning to depend and seeing the character of God over and over, daily being reinforced in your life. And because of that, of course, you cannot face a big trial. You haven't trained. You haven't trained. And here is Zechariah's point to the Israelites. Israel, you want to know how to get and to react to and respond to and trust for God's promises? Why not just take the first baby step? Ask for rain. Ask for rain. That's the first thing. You know God's going to do great things and rain's a part of it. So just trust him today for your daily bread. Ask for rain at the latter rains. Why? Simple. Because God is able. What does it say in the text? It says Yahweh who makes is the one who makes the storm clouds. That's what it says. Yahweh is the one who makes the storm clouds. It is absolutely fascinating that the Bible is so precise about how God produces rain. It is scientific in nature. This word for storm clouds is actually found in the book of Job, which talks a lot about storms. It's fascinating. And in fact, a lot of scholars, they want to date Job late, very, very late in Israel's history. One of the latest books ever. And you ask why? One of the key criteria they say is not because of the language. It's not because of the theology. It's because of this, because they notice that in the book of Job, God is so precise about rainstorms about the process of evaporation, about the process of condensation. There are precise, accurate, meticulous descriptions of those scientific processes. And they say, an ancient person could never understand that. That's what they argue. So it can't be written in the time that Job actually lived, they argue, because that's around the time of Abraham. And how could people be so scientific back then? Well, here's the answer. They were scientific back then. They were very good. And God is not just the God of science. He's the God over science. He's the one who created it. So of course he knows how to communicate these very complex and sophisticated activities. He invented them. By the way, that should tell us something. If he wanted to talk about evolution in Genesis 1, he could have. There's no problem. He doesn't have a speech impediment. He's fine. But... He tells you, though, how it really happened. Just like he tells you how rain really happened in the book of Job. And so when it says here that Yahweh is the one who makes 
And this is a habitual participle. He does it all the time. That's what he does. That's everything in storms are are responsible to him and caused by him. It's characteristic of him. He knows exactly how to cause a storm. We don't even know how to predict storms. Okay? California, the weather is easier, I grant it, because basically it's between 50 to 70 to 80 to 90 degrees or whatever, and it's sunny every day. But in places that actually have things that we call weather, AccuWeather is a joke. So all we can do is react to weather. God is the one that causes it. And so here's the question. Israel, why would you trust in anyone else besides the God who can do it? And even for our own lives, here's what we need to remember. Who's the one who knows how to give joy? Who's the one who knows how to provide? Who's the one who knows how to heal the human body? Who's the one who knows how to give wisdom? Who's the one who knows how to rectify everything? God. So why are we trusting in someone else? Why are you not going to the expert? You say, but this person knows what he... Do you think he knows more than God? No. Okay, so let's start the question over. Why are we going to someone ultimately other than God? This is the question we must ask ourselves. Why are we putting, you could put it this way, our total reliance, our ultimate trust in that which does not have the competence of God? That is what Zechariah is asking. And God is not just competent, that's why we should ask him. God is also faithful. Notice the next phrase. When you ask from Yahweh for that rain, notice what the text says in the end of verse 1. He will give the showers of rain. I love that phrase. The idea is already rain is a rejuvenating amount. Not too much, not too little, just right. And showers of rain means this that God gives absolutely the perfect amount of rain. It's the fullness of what should be. Not over it, not under it. God does not skimp on his promises. He's not like some parents. You know, one time I was talking to my kids and we were talking about driving and I said, well, you know what kind of car I'm going to buy you? And one of my children said, I know, it'll just be a Hot Wheels and I looked at it and I said, actually, that's an upgrade from what I was going to say, but that's a great idea. We'll go with that. God is not like that. <laughs> he gives exactly what should be in the fullness of what you need. And he doesn't diminish it. If you need this many drops of rain, you get exactly that many drops of rain. If it's too much rain would ruin the plants of the field as it talks about it, you don't get that much. If too little causes a drought and would cause those plants to die and you would be malnourished, you don't get that. You get exactly the perfect amount that you need. That's the level of faithfulness. He will give it. And of course, ultimately, this is referring to the rain that he will provide in the future, but it is, is also reflective of his daily faithfulness. Whatever rain you need, to give you whatever plants you need of the field for every single person, God is faithful to do that. And so you ask God. You don't go to any other. And that becomes very clear in verse 2. Because all the alternatives, they're nothing. All the alternatives are nothing. Notice what it says. The teraphim. You say, what is a teraphim? A teraphim is an idol. 
It's a derivation of God that's blasphemous. And it is also a, a ritual that people engaged in to commune with, to connect with the supernatural realm. Well, when you make those connections, whether by through the idol or through the activity, what do they say? They just speak wickedness. You go to false religion, you don't become better. You just become worse. The advice you get doesn't, isn't just neutral. It actually stumbles you into sin. It degrades you. That's God's point. And it's not just the teraphim. Well, there's another alternative. If the teraphim is you going to the supernatural realm, well, what does the diviner do? The diviner reads how the supernatural has come into your world. They read omens. They read signs. They read the sky. They are superstitious in the classic definition. And what do they see through all this superstition? Look at what it says in the text, verse 2. They behold false visions. They behold false visions. What's a false vision? It's a lie. It's not true. It's not reliable. It's not a fact. It's fictitious. And what does that fictitious dream vision do? Well, they see what it says here. They see wicked or, shall we say, worthless dreams. These dreams, why are they worthless? Because they don't do anything. Why? Because they're not real. If it's not real, it doesn't exist. And if it doesn't exist, it's not going to help you. It's not going to do anything because it doesn't exist. And so these things won't help you. They won't help you at all. And you say, okay, but no harm, no foul. Notice the last phrase. Oh, they'll, they'll harm you. They comfort in vain. They comfort in vain. The word for vanity is the same word that you find in the book of Ecclesiastes. Vanity, vanity, all is what? Vanity. Just a breath comes to nothing, just is blown away, just like that. People, when they go to these false religions, when they go to the teraphim or the idol or the diviner, they want comfort. They want resolution. They want encouragement. They're vulnerable. They're susceptible. And what these people do is they give them comfort that won't help them at all. It'll crush them. They give them comfort that provides them no solace, that provides them no satisfaction, that provides them no solution, that provides them no encouragement. That's what these things do. They're not neutral. They're harmful. And you might say, well, I don't deal with teraphim. never heard of it until now. And I certainly don't go to diviners. I don't do any of that. We have our modern-day equivalents. We do. You have to understand that while pagan religion may be, well, it's really on the rise, and it's really becoming more and more overt, but what modernism has done is it has just put paganism in new clothing. That's all that it's done. It, all that has happened is false religion has infiltrated, and all we've done is painted it in new terms that sound really good to us. 
We make God into all kinds of things he is not. We make our own idols and think that that's going to help us, but all it does will speak to us in wickedness. It'll just cause us to stumble because you're not knowing the real God. You're just knowing a fake and you're following a fake which will lead you to destruction. And, and we have, you might say, well, what about a diviner? Well, some people are superstitious. They still look at the horoscopes. But even more than that, people often, they just try to read things in life and they try to project it back onto, quote unquote, your inner self. This is the therapist. That's the modern day term for it. This is the guru. This is even the usage of drugs. And I don't mean Tylenol. I mean drugs that are used to alter your state of consciousness, to give you a different feeling. What is that? Where are you going when you alter your state of consciousness? You're going from the natural to the what? Spiritual. It's just that you're not going to the spiritual place right in fact, it's fascinating that the word sometimes used for diviner is the word pharmakos in Greek, which we get the word pharmacy. We do this all the time. We just put different labels on it to make it sound a little bit more palatable to us. But anytime, let's do it this way, when you try to access the spiritual world, whether you go to it or you see how it comes to you outside of the book that actually knows the truth, you're doing this false religion. You are doing this false religion. And here's the exhortation. It'll harm you. Here's the end result. Look at the end of verse 2. In this way, therefore, they wander like sheep. They are afflicted and there is no shepherd. You want to see what false religion, in whatever stripe, whatever variation it does to people, all they are are like sheep. They just wander they just encamp in different places. They just go from thing to thing to thing to thing. We call those things fads. Trying to find happiness, trying to find satisfaction, trying to find peace, and they can't. And what are these people? It says in the text, they are afflicted. Why? Because they're so vulnerable. They're so weak, and people will take advantage of them. That's what you read about in the news all the time. This is happening today. Why? The tragedy is this, because there is no what? Shepherd. There is no shepherd. They have no shepherd. Why is the word shepherd used there, not only because of the metaphor of the flock, but look at chapter 11. Just scan through it. Do you notice? It doesn't take very much long to see that in chapter 11, this is about the shepherd. This is about the shepherd. Verse 8 and verse 7 I will shepherd the flock. I shepherd the flock. And notice even later on, the shepherd is betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. Does this sound familiar at all? This is about the good shepherd. What is Zechariah's point? You want to know why these are so lost? You want to know why these aren't an alternative? Because they have the wrong shepherd, which is really no shepherd. Who do you need? You need not the wrong shepherd, but the good shepherd. You need the good shepherd the one who will save you. And so seek Yahweh. This is the issue. It's not hard. Seek Yahweh. He's the good shepherd. He's the one who will take care of you. He's the one who's able. He's the one who's faithful. It's not hard. Do not settle for a substitute. Seek him alone. There's no other alternative but him. And along that line, it's not just about seeking Yahweh. Second, beware of the substitute then. Beware of the substitute. You want to know? 
verses 3 and following what a substitute is and, how, and the danger of a substitute, it's simple. Look at the first part of verse 3. My wrath is kindled against the shepherds, i.e. the false ones, because there's only one good shepherd, singular. Everyone else is a false shepherd. There are shepherds that are false, plural. We've sometimes said, I don't want to be around certain people because if the lightning strikes, I don't want to get struck. Well, that's the logic here. Shepherds are under judgment if they're false. Why would you hang around them? Why would you be around them? And it's not just spiritual shepherds uh, that we are talking about here, although that's included. Notice the next phrase, I will visit punishment on the male goats. The male goats refers to anyone in leadership, political or otherwise, that are not following the Lord. Be careful of them, God exhorts. Why? You might say, especially if you know some of these individuals, the reason they're in leadership is because they're persuasive and they're easily able to be followed. Why does God judge them so harshly? Notice the next phrase, because Yahweh of hosts has visited his flock. He visits the wicked ones in judgment because he visits his own flock. And notice the language there, it's his flock. He has care for his sheep. He actually loves them. He actually has intentions to them. And so when he visits and he sees his sheep being mistreated by these faux, fraudulent, charlatan leaders, he's going to judge them. He can't not because he loves his own flock so much. And notice, this is what God wants to do with his own people. He wants, as it says at the end of verse 3, to make them like a splendid horse in battle. He's there to empower his people. What are false teachers always doing? Plundering their people. They're always taking away from them. And Yahweh, when he visits and he sees what these false people, what these false leaders are doing to his people, he cannot stand it because they're everything opposite to him. And so he says, don't buy the substitute. They're opposite of Yahweh. They're nothing like him. Look at verse 4. You want to know what Jesus is like? These are beautiful descriptions of him. Notice, he is stability from him, from them. That is the the tribe of Judah, the house of Judah. Mentioned in verse 3, comes the what? The cornerstone. Have we not heard that our Messiah is the cornerstone? He is the one that puts it all together. He's the one that you can rely on. He's the stable one. And they're not stable. False teachers are never reliable. They're never stable. Look at the next phrase. From them comes the tent peg. You say, what's a tent peg? Often we think of tent pegs as the thing you stake in the ground to secure a tent. And that's true. But there's another kind of tent peg in the ancient Near East. And that's in the center pole of a tent. And you hang like a hanger all your treasures, all your implements, all your belongings on that tent peg. It holds all the glory that you have. Think of it like a coat hanger. Think of it like a a coat rack. Things like that. That's the idea of a tent peg here. And in biblical history, all the promises of God and all the potential of the kingdom and all the peace and the glory that could ensue from that was hung on the Davidic dynasty. They were to be a tent peg. But here's what Isaiah says in Isaiah 22 that one of the Davidic stewards, one of the Davidic rulers, you could say, he was a tent peg and he held it up for a little bit of time and everybody was happy, but then the tent peg came crashing down. And everything that 
Israel hoped for, all their hopes and dreams, all the promises and potential, all the power of the Davidic dynasty came crashing down with it. Couldn't support the weight. Couldn't support the weight. But what do we learn about Christ? He can. Here's what you have to understand about Jesus. Your destiny hangs on him. That's, what, that's the truth of the matter. Your destiny hangs on him. That's what it means that he's the tempeg. Why would you go to someone else if he's the one who holds his destiny? If you are so dependent on him, if he fails, you fail. Why would you go to someone else? He's not just our strength. He's not just our splendor. He's not just the stable one. Notice, look at the phrase, from them comes the bow of war. You say, what's the bow of war? Well, it's the bow that you use in war. And you say, why is Jesus called that there? Because in chapter 9, it says this, God will destroy all bows of war. You say, why? Because there will only be one, his son. All the power will belong to him in the end. So he has all the stability, all the splendor, all the strength, and even all the supervision. Notice the last phrase. From him goes out all the taskmasters. You're saying, what's a taskmaster? Exactly what it sounds like. Taskmaster, not pleasant. The word is used in the book of Exodus for all the cruel bosses people had in Exodus. But here's what's amazing here. Israel was oppressed in Exodus by their taskmasters. Israel was oppressed by their taskmasters in Babylon. That's true. But here's what Jesus raises up. Taskmasters who are what? Verse 5. They're like mighty men. They're the ones who trample the enemies down into the dust. And they do battle because Yahweh is with them. These are the people who are mighty. These are the people who fight for you. These are the people who support you. These are the people that Yahweh is with. These are the people who are unbreakable in their stand for you. Notice the last phrase of verse 5, that even the riders of horses will be ashamed. If you ever watch a movie and you notice always these cavalry charges, like in Lord of the Rings, twice, the horses run down, you know, it's over. It's over. The bad guys are going to die because the horses have come in. Well, imagine in that scene, if all of a sudden the orcs just did something and all the horses now ran away scared, that would be a surprise. That's what's going to happen on the final day. Because God's army and God's leaders, they're going to be so mighty that whatever the enemy hurls and whatever you think would totally destroy and devastate the armies of God, they will fail that day. They will fail in the future. That's the kind of leadership God will raise up for his people. These are not the taskmasters who are oppressive in Israel's past. They're the entire opposite of that for their future. And here is God's point. Hey, that's what I do because I love you. I am your stability. I am your splendor. I am your strength. And I am your highest supervision. Why would you go to a substitute? Why would you ever think that a substitute could ever do that or ever have those kinds of thoughts and those kinds of intentions toward you. They're completely opposite of the true. All satisfaction should be found in Christ, in Christ alone. At the end of the Chronicles of Narnia, in the last battle, there is this donkey that pretends to be Aslan. And it's so frustrating to read because you know he's a fake, but everyone in Narnia buys it, except the king. And the king said, don't you all see it? 
Aslan gave his life for you, not taking your life away from you. Don't you understand? This one's a fake. But because they didn't really know the true king, they all bought into the lie. Here's God's warning. Do you really know the all-satisfying nature of Christ? Do you really know how stable he is for you? That all the splendor and all your destiny and all the promises hangs on him. Do you really know that he is the only warrior that is the real warrior and will stand in the end? Do you really know that he's the only one who can raise up true leaders to help and to guide us and who won't oppress us? Do you really know that? If you do, then why are you looking somewhere else for solutions? Don't you know? He's the only one you should follow. There is no other substitute but him. Now, there's one final point. Seek Yahweh. Beware of the substitutes. And here's the final one. The sufficiency of Christ. The sufficiency of Christ. Verses 6 all the way to the end of the chapter. When we talk about the word sufficiency, what we mean is simply this. Christ is all that I need. Not just he's good for some things. He's all that I need. And what we've seen so far is, yes, Christ is the right leader. Yes, you don't want to ask anybody else besides Yahweh for rain. But what about everything else? And so in quick succession, verse 6 through 12 shows he will give you every single kind of deliverance you could ever imagine. You don't need to look anywhere else. He's got it all. And in verses 6 and 7, you see that he will give you physical deliverance. Physical deliverance. He'll make the house of Judah mighty. That word mighty is used throughout chapter 10 because what you have is the mighty work of the mighty Messiah. He's all the strength you need. He's all the power you need. You feel weak, you need his might. His might is the only might that works. He provides physical deliverance. Notice he will save not only the house of Judah, but the house of Joseph, northern and southern kingdoms, and he will turn them back. He will cause them to return. That's return physically. That's return spiritually. That's return relationally. Why? Because I will have compassion on them. Do you want to be loved? Do you, sometimes we feel lonely, and sometimes we wish that someone would truly love us, and sometimes we feel weary, and we wonder if we're going to get to the end goal, and sometimes we feel exhausted, and we wonder if we're going to persevere. Here's what God says. I'm the one who makes people mighty, and I will save, and I will get my people back, and I will return them back home because I love them. I love them. And notice, I love this. Look at this phrase in verse 6. Do not miss it and they will be like as if I never rejected them. I have never rejected them. Sometimes we say this, well, yes, there are, you'll take a bruising in life, but you'll forget it. But of course, the scars will still what? Remain. Here's what God says. You will have no scars. It'll be as if nothing ever happened. And all of those thoughts of all of the rejection that you might have faced and all the discipline and all the trials, that will fade to the back. And it will be as if it never took place. You could never tell that it ever happened. Why? Because I am Yahweh their God and I will answer them. You want to have that kind of deliverance where it is, you are so delivered that you are rescued out of all of those trials so that it, as if it never happened. You only look to one person. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 7. 
and they will be like a mighty man who, Ephraim, and their heart will rejoice like with wine. You want to have happiness? That's the kind of deliverance that is only found in God. But notice this next phrase, and I love this. Their children will see and will rejoice. It will rejoice in their heart in Yahweh. You want to know how comprehensive the extensiveness of Yahweh's final deliverance? It won't just be for the grown-ups. It'll be for who? The children. The children. When we say all Israel will be saved, what do we mean? All Israel. Parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, and all the way down to the baby. They will all know Christ. They will all know Christ. And here's what's so beautiful. It's two things that are so beautiful here is that they see and they're happy. You know kids have no filter. You know that. They just say some things and you're saying, no, 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 you don't say that, even if it's true. You don't say that. (laughs) These kids, they'll see what Christ does and they will be rejoicing. And you know then how good it is. You then know how good his work will be. Children sometimes see the most terrible things and they're often the victims of war and injustice. We recognize that but not on that day. The ones who are the most victimized will be the ones who are most joyful because they'll see the deliverance. And notice what it says. Their heart, there's an internal transformation there, will rejoice what? In Yahweh. God will save them. That's what we mean by all Israel will be what? Saved. And God's point in Zechariah is this. Since I can do that kind of deliverance, why would you go with someone else? Why would you accept a substitute? Who can top that? Who can top saving everybody? You can't beat that. That's the ultimate physical deliverance. And it's accompanied by a spiritual deliverance. Verse 8, God says he'll whistle for them. Why does he whistle? Because originally he whistled for judgment in Isaiah 5. And so now he's going to finish the job and turn it all around by whistling for them in a spiritual deliverance as he gathers them, as the next phrase says, because I have redeemed them. The word redeemed means this, he paid the price. He paid the price. Deliverance doesn't come free. It costs you something. And ultimately, to be freed from the wrath of God and all its consequences, it costs a life for a life. You know what false teachers never do? They never sacrifice themselves for others. Not even close. Christ, though, he says, I'll pay the price. Whatever price is required, I'll give it. That's what he does. And they will be numerous as they were before. And here's the power of spiritual deliverance. Verse 9. I love this. I will sow them among the nations. Everyone hear that? Normally, we know what it's like to be dispersed and to be scattered. That's often the word that God uses to talk about his judgment as he sends his people out. I scatter them. I I disperse them. I spread them out. I banish them. But that's not what he says here. What does he say? I sowed them. Sowed them like sowing seed. Like in Matthew 13 with the parable of the sower. He sowed them so that not just so that they would be disciplined, but that the gospel would be sown in their hearts and that they would be changed. Do you want to have the right perspective? Sometimes we go into a trial and we think God is just scattering us. He's just disciplining us. He's just judging us. God said, if you really understood my salvation, you would understand, I'm not scattering you. I'm sowing you. I'm sowing you to change you. I'm sowing you to spread you out so that you would have an impact on others. 
I'm sowing you out there. Do you really understand spiritual salvation? Notice, when he sows them amongst the people, what do they do? They remember me from afar. This is so amazing. The book of Zechariah means Yahweh remembers. What's his goal? I remember you so that you will remember me. That was always his end game. He always wanted them to remember him and his son. And as a result, notice what the last phrase says, and they will live. The just shall live. This is not just that you have physical life. This is what you have life, as Paul says, life indeed. 1 Timothy chapter 6. This is eternal life, and you will have it in the end. Not just you, but with your sons. And you will all return. And you want to know, you have a physical deliverance, and you have a spiritual deliverance, verses 10 and 11 and 12. You have the final deliverance. You say, why is it final? Simple. Notice, I'm going to return you from the land of Egypt. You know that Israel went down to Egypt before. God says, I'm going to reverse it. I'm going to gather you from Assyria. You know that Israel went down to Assyria before. God says, I'm going to reverse it. And he's going to bring them, and this is surprising, to the land of Gilead and Lebanon, and no room will be found there. Why is he bringing them to those places? Why not to the promised land? It's simple, because there's no room in the inn. The promised land is full. And so he's trying, God is bringing his people to the outer regions of Israel, hoping that they would actually get in. And guess what? There's no room for them there. Why is this the ultimate deliverance? Because when God brings back Israel and saves all of Israel from all of the world and brings them back in, they won't be able to fit in Israel. They won't be able to fit in Israel. That will be how massive the deliverance will be. It'll be beyond a region. That's how large it will be. And God will allow them to go straight home. It says this, he will cross the street of sea of distress. He will strike the sea and the waves and he will make it all dry and he will bring down the pride of Assyria and the rod of Egypt will depart. What does all that mean? Any obstacle that blocks Israel from coming home at that time in the future, when all Israel will be saved, eschatologically, God says, I'm going to take it all out. We know the fastest way to get somewhere is a straight line. But often that doesn't work because you got mountains, rivers, waters, people, things like that. God says, not this time. Everyone goes home straight line. I'm just going to pave the way for them to get home. And God says, that's the final deliverance. And you say, well, I mean... How do we know it's final? Because it's final. Verse 12. I will make them mighty in who? In Yahweh. You know what? When everyone is saved and everyone is mighty in Yahweh, you won't need another deliverance because it's over. Because the people are saved once and for all, forever. And that's how the text ends. And here's God's point. I can save you physically. I can save you spiritually. I can save you for all time. So who are you going to trust? Who are you going to come to? Are you going to look to a cheap substitute that can make you happy for five minutes? Or are you actually going to come to me when I can make you happy for forever? Choose which one you're going to serve, so to speak. Ask Yahweh for rain. Turn to the cornerstone. Turn to the tempeg. That's his message. That's his message. Don't accept a substitute. You know the tragedy of all this? Zechariah is preaching his heart out in chapter 10. And what happened when the one came riding on a donkey? Did they accept him? Who did they turn to? All the what? Substitutes. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious leaders, and Rome. 
But Zechariah said, you had one thing to do. All you had was to do one thing. And did Israel do it? And the answer is no. And what happened to the nation? It was destroyed. 70 AD came in and wiped them out. And by the way, it gets even worse. Because, because they were so inclined to choose a substitute, in the end, here's the prophecy, they'll choose a substitute for Christ. His name is not Christ, but Antichrist. And they will pay dearly. Choosing a substitute is a matter of life and death. That's what we have to understand. This is not a trivial issue. And for us in our season of life and in our time, the question is the same. We're in the time of the Gentiles. And in this season, when we are bombarded with substitutes and distractions, here is Zechariah's message. Choose no substitute. Know who the Savior really is and see through the lies of any substitute and flee from that. Shall we pray? Our God and Father, thank you for this passage of Scripture. May the glories of Christ, may his all-sufficiency, that he is the physical, the spiritual, the final Savior, that he's the strength and the splendor, that he is everything to us that we ever need. He is the one who can even save children and do miraculous things. May these truths undergird our hearts so that our eyes do not look to lesser things, things that are just cheap substitutes, not Christ, substitutes and not the Savior. May our hearts be anchored to him, particularly in this season, but always. And may we love him all the more for his name's sake. Amen.